Good morning, church. Um, with these shoe boxes being packed, the youth tonight are folding them. So uh, it's it's one of my favorite things that the youth get to do every year. We we have a good time doing it, getting together, and uh, yeah, they're they're all still flat in in a pile, but. Uh, by tonight, they will not be. They will be ready to go for next weekend. So um, it's exciting, and we always have a good time doing that. Uh, it's, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here again and, and share. Uh, and I guess in, in getting to this, I, this one is, is a challenge. Uh, I would just say that out of the gate. Uh, we, we're still looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to take my time on that, but uh, this week is, is it's, a, it's a challenge, and so uh, I just want to preface it with that uh, and, and just remind you that in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the goal that Jesus has in the sermon is to present um, the, the, the kingdom, the standards of the kingdom, what, what the kingdom will be like, and, and how we can experience that kingdom now. Uh, and, and he is telling this, this group of people gathered on this hillside about this kingdom. And, and for many of them, the idea that they're going to participate in a kingdom is a completely new idea. Because in their brain, the kingdom is the, the Roman Empire who has been occupying their territory. And they might not necessarily enjoy that all the time. Uh, and so in the section that we're looking at, um, Jesus has begun to give moral standards of the kingdom... Um, and we, we've talked about the, the payback and, and promises and how we view truth and how we view anger, lust, and divorce uh, and those type of things. And Jesus has laid out this little um, kind of package of moral standards for the kingdom. And in those, we learn a little bit more about, okay, what's this kingdom going to be like? And how do we as people changed by Jesus, people who are members of this kingdom, interact? Like, how are we supposed to live? Uh, and... We're going to continue Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and, and in Matthew chapter 5, in this section, Jesus is speaking of this fulfilled law. Uh, and, and he calls the members of the kingdom to a greater capacity of love in living out that fulfilled law. Um, and, and so far, in, in these fulfilled law moral standards, um, they, they've been challenging in and of themselves. Uh, and I, I don't want to downplay those. They, they follow a format, all of these, these challenges, where Jesus says that uh, you have heard that it was said either in tradition or in the law or in just general teaching today, but now today I say to you. And he uses this format of over here is the standard that you might have heard at one point, but now today Jesus on this hillside to this people is giving them this either, uh, not an update, but a hey, this might not have always been viewed correctly. And we need to make sure that we get it right when we start to interact as members of the kingdom. Uh, and so this week, Jesus completes this section. He's going to wrap up the, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and for us, as people reading it in Matthew, we're going to wrap up chapter 5. Uh, and it, it truly is a wrap up because, um, it, you know, it's, it's building, building, building. And then Jesus kind of just smacks one right out of the park and just leaves the crowd and us going, okay, here we are. Um, and what we're going to look at is really one of the defining factors of what it means to be Christian. 
Uh, To be Christian at its core means that we put our faith in Jesus. We've been changed by Jesus through saving faith. But when it comes to the Christian life and what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to when we go out in the community and we act and conduct ourselves as a Christian, what we're going to talk today is, is, is at the core of what that means. It affects and it impacts all other interactions that we're going to have because it informs them. Uh, In fact, when Jesus uh, said this, even outside of Christianity, people who look onto and into Christianity from an outside perspective, they look at this teaching of Jesus and they go, man, that that was groundbreaking. That's world-changing. Even people who do not call on the name of Jesus Look at Jesus' words at the end of Matthew chapter 5 and they acknowledge, this is next level. This this is going to change some things. And so to set the stage for this, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has just said. Because Jesus is giving a sermon. And all of this, Matthew 5 through 7, is all given in one go. Jesus didn't stop and go, and okay, let's go to lunch and we'll come back next week and do the next part. That's how we do it. That's not what Jesus did. He gave it all in one go. And so what we're going to look at today comes immediately after what Jesus has just said. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, to to remind us of where Jesus is coming from. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Last time I had the opportunity to share, uh, we looked at retaliation, and how often in the middle of a, a conflict situation, we are really, really bad judges of what justice looks like. And so in, in this, Jesus says, justice is important, and there should be justice. But in the moment, we are, we are better to prioritize love so as to not mistake justice for retaliation. And I think sometimes uh, we, we hear that and, and go, okay, well, that's just in that moment. As soon as I'm away from that person and I'm away from that situation and I'm, and I'm away from this, this thing that I, I want to get back and, I, and I'm removed from it, I'm off the hook, and I can think, feel, and say, and act how I want about that person, because I'm mad. Jesus had already communicated pretty clearly about anger, but I think there's this idea that that retaliation has a lot to do when we're face-to-face with them. But what about next week? (laughs) Or next year? Or when we might never, ever talk to that person again, because we live thousands of miles away? How do we view interacting with people at those times. And so our king, Jesus, and the standard of his kingdom, we'll see is much higher. As it has been so far, every time Jesus keeps raising the bar and challenging us more. And so today we're going to focus on the end of this first section. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. I just pray that as we look at um, this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, these words of Jesus that in many ways are, are so common and, and so well known uh, that, that we might just kind of have them on repeat so often. I pray that, that we would be challenged in a new way by what you have for us here. I pray that the Spirit would move to help us reflect on our own lives and our own relationships and that, that we would take necessary action as members of the kingdom of God. We love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus returns to the same format that I mentioned. He says, you have heard that it was said, and it's over here, but now I say to you today. Uh, and, and what tradition said here, it's pretty wild. Um, like, it says, love your neighbor, and we can get on board with that. Uh, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. And we're going, yes, very good. Uh, we like that one. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, tradition says, and hate your enemy. And, and you hear that and you go, well, where in the world were they getting this? Like, it, you might hear that, that people who were reading the Old Testament and were interacting with this God took those experiences and what they were reading and, and arrived at the conclusion that they were to hate their enemy. Uh, and and th that is where they were at. And, and if someone tells you, the, the first thing is here, if someone tells you, hey, you need to love your neighbor. Uh, it, it, it serves well to know who your neighbor is. Like, if I say, hey, y'all need to love your neighbor, you can start, like, creating the little boxes. It's like, okay, it's the people. How many doors down? Um, does the people around the block count? Uh, and, and what about, like, well, they go to a different church. So, uh, love your neighbor. So, it's important for us to figure out who, who is our neighbor and... and for the people seated there, he is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. Most of the people gathered are, are Jews who have interacted with the Old Testament. And to this audience, when they talk about loving your neighbor, they're speaking primarily about fellow Israelites. That is primarily where this idea is speaking towards. Love your neighbor means fellow people of God, the Israelite people. Um, Leviticus 19 17 to 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So all of these ideas in there, um, hate your brother, reason frankly with your neighbor, take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, this is all Israelite the community of God, your neighbor. And so when they are thinking neighbor, they are thinking fellow Jewish people, people who are, are of the Israelite community. Uh, 
And so this common teaching then was you have to love them, even though at times it was probably difficult, uh, and a lot of the rest of Leviticus has plenty of laws to give them to figure out how to do that well. Uh, but but you're to love your neighbor. And then there's this teaching about like, but everyone else over here, you can hate them. You can hate your enemy. That was this common idea that not only they had, but that the teachers of their day were teaching people. Now, come on. <laughs> um, this passage in Leviticus and, and other places in the Old Testament, Psalm 137, is this psalm calling for God to take vengeance on this person's enemies. And, and these passages are taken, and they were taken by the people of the day, and they were said, yep, we got to love our neighbor. But when it comes to our enemies, forget those people. No, you don't have to. In fact, the word hate is, is like, that's not just, well, I'm not going to love them. That's active. That means I'm going to actively, like, turn away, do away with, be away from these people. Scribes and religious leaders began to teach this, that this was a call for God to show and take vengeance on one enemies is really license for God's people to show hatred to them. That's what this teaching began to do with these scribes and Pharisees. And as we'll see, and I think as we already know, that's not how it is. <laughs> that's not consistent. The problem is, is we have to get the knowledge that that doesn't work into our lives. That's tough. Because we can sit here all day, and I think people for, for centuries have read these words, love your enemy, and they've gone, that's an awesome idea. I like that. That's really good. Until their enemy's right here. And then it's really hard. <laughs> to hate someone, really hate someone, at its core, goes against all of what Jesus has said so far about how we should be as members of the kingdom. So to the notion that we ought to hate the people who are not our neighbor, that's a mistake. There was an error made in their teaching. And Jesus corrects it. He says, now I say to you, do the opposite of that. The people that you've been told for so long that it's okay to not just dislike them, but you do away with them, hate them. Jesus says, no, no, love them. Do the same thing that you're doing with your neighbor, and now apply it to your enemy. And he says, pray for the people who persecute you. Uh, please don't answer this, but uh, have you ever had an enemy? And, and what I mean by that is I'm not talking about someone that you're annoyed with, or you're frustrated with, or who cut you off in tra traffic, or got your name wrong, or spelled your name wrong, or said something mean to you one time. That is not who I'm talking about here. These type of people are hard enough to love. Like, <laughs> they kind of pick at us. And it's like, okay, here we go. They're hard enough. But that is not what an enemy is. An enemy is a person who is against you. They're opposed to you. In fact, uh, the name Satan, so like Satan, the name, 
when it's translated, means the enemy or the adversary. It's the one opposed to God and the people of God. So when Jesus is talking about enemy, he's not talking about people that we, oh, we had a little disagreement last week. No. These are people who are against you. They want to see you fail. They want to see you suffer. And they want to see the worst for you. An enemy. And I think when we hold this view, if we're honest, and if we're really honest and we start to, okay, well, who are these enemy people? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot less enemies than we think. Just in general. And so to the people seated before Jesus, when they thought of enemies, when Jesus is talking to this crowd and he says, hey, love your enemies, they all have a, a pretty, I believe, a similar conception of what an enemy is uh, in their brain. And that is, it's primarily of these Roman occupying soldiers and these tax collectors. Because these are two groups of people who actively can oppose them legally in public with very little repercussion in their own lives. And so, with these groups of people, these, these Roman tax collectors, they're opposed to the Israelite people in, in many ways, in that they can, like Jesus is talking about retaliation, they can drop their bag down and say, pick it up. Take it a mile, carry it a mile, and then Jesus calls them to carry it too. So when they're thinking enemy, they're thinking of these, these Roman occupation soldiers and these tax collectors. More on the tax collectors in a little bit. They're, they're groups who would actively take advantage and mistreat the people of God, the Israelites. And Jesus says to them, y'all love them. The person who hates you, the person who mistreats you, the person who speaks evil about you, the person who wants you to fail and does everything that they can to make you fail, and Jesus says love them. And not just, not just like outwardly, it's like, okay, when I'm around them, I will, it'll look like I love them. He says, no, no, pray for them. Do it on your own time as well. Pray for these people. If they mistreat you for being a person changed by Jesus for the way you live as a citizen of the kingdom, Jesus says you are to pray for them. Take time to pray for the people who mistreat you. If you do that, it, it will change how you interact with the world. This idea is revolutionary. You take all of what's written in the Bible, and there might not be, from an outsider's perspective, there might not be a more profound message given. Love your enemy and pray for the people who persecute you. It's groundbreaking, but it's incredibly difficult. I, I'm not saying, like, hey, just, just flip the switch, and tomorrow I'll just start. Like, it's, it's hard. Jesus says loving in this way, somehow, in some way, when we can learn to love our enemies and really love them, not just look like we do, but love our enemies, Jesus says somehow, in some way, that makes us appear or to be characterized more as sons and daughters of God our Father. That's what he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. That's the result. <laughs> so when we learn to love our enemies, 
we look and act a little more like our God. And we might think, well, okay, I'll pray for them, all right. Like, I've read things like Psalm 137. He, he was going for it. Uh, I'll pray that they get what's coming to them. Jesus kind of says, no. Not the goal here. He begins to talk about this example of the natural world. So he says, he gives this big profound statement, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, because when you do, you'll be like your father who is in heaven. And then he just pivots, and he's like, time to talk about the weather. Um, And he says, God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. And we hear that, and we're like, okay, yeah, like the sun's going to come up tomorrow. He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. And when you love your enemy, that's what you look like. That's what Jesus is communicating here. And we, we might hear that and go, well, like, that's weird. Like, why is Jesus talking about this all of a sudden? The teachers in tradition had used scripture to say one, would, one could hate their enemy. That was what they had done. And Jesus points here to this scripture in Leviticus 19, and he's going back and he says, uh, y- you actually are called to love your enemies as well. And he uses God as this example because God brings this weather pattern of sun and rain to both evil and good, just and unjust. The teachers in tradition uh, had, had strayed a bit because in Leviticus 19, Verse 33 and 34 of that same chapter where they took this notion of who's our neighbor and love our neighbor. Verses 33 and 34 of that exact same chapter tells us that when there is a sojourner or a foreigner living amongst the people of God, they were to treat them as a neighbor. Okay. So we're expanding the idea of neighbor is what Jesus is trying to do. When Jesus is over on this hillside, and he knows this. He has Leviticus in his brain. He's well aware of what it says. When you interact with your enemy and those who persecute you, you do so, at least in the kingdom, with the same interactions as you would have with someone who fits the category of neighbor. You don't change it. God, who is all just, who is all good, is committed and loving in nature, at the end of the day, chooses to bring good of some sort to both the good and the evil. That's what Jesus says. God chooses that. Whether it's just allowing general blessing to flow out into nature and they enjoy it, or by giving rain. That's an active thing here. It's not, well, stick the cloud over there and they can huddle under it. No. God, at the end of the day, has an economy of love where God says, listen, I'm not going to ignore the evil and the injustice. But I still love you. And so I will allow you to experience some sort of blessing from me so that way you will know that despite what you're doing, it's still called unjust. There's a communication of I still love you. And we might hear that and we'll think, what? Okay, well, what's the deal? Because, like, what, what type of God, and I hear this question plenty, what type of God is just 
and would be justified to withhold that rain, go, nope, no rain for these people. They'd be justified in doing that, but doesn't and chooses to give them rain instead. What type of God is that? And to, my answer is it's a God who chooses to love his enemies. That's what Jesus is talking about. We have this example. When we love our enemies, we are like our Father who is in heaven, who is a God who chooses to love his enemies. And if you hear that and you think, well, thank goodness I'm not God's enemy. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, or if you will, while we were busy being the enemies of God, God did a whole lot more than just send us rain. He gave us Jesus, who, can, who is consequently now sitting on this hillside with this group of people. I believe he understood he was going to die one day, <laughs> saying, now y'all love your enemies. So in the kingdom, as people changed from enemies of God to children of God, through Jesus, we have the charge and duty to actively love our enemies and pray for their well-being. That's tough. Jesus drives his point home. He says in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? So if you decide to only love those who love you, only, only care for the people who care about you, <laughs> Jesus is like, you, you don't look like God the Father or a citizen of the kingdom. You look like your enemies. They do that. <laughs> so good for you. Jesus told this, this group of people gathered, this poor, afflicted, sick, outcast group of people. Remember, these are the people on the fringes. They're following Jesus around because he's healing them and feeding them. This outcast group who had often received mistreatment just for their status in life, he says, you'll have to be better. Love your enemy. Because if you just love the people who are really nice to you, that's what they're doing. Again, these people's enemies, the Roman guards and tax collectors, and in the common Jewish vernacular, the idea of a tax collector is the absolute worst. Uh, these were often people who may or may not have been Jewish themselves, but had decided, ooh, I can get an in here, and I can be one of the people who collects a task, tax and get in good with this Roman occupation. And so often, they were taking a little more off the top, a little more than they should have, pocketing some, handing some to these Roman occupation guards. They were taking advantage. To their culture, these tax collectors are the worst. No. <laughs> They're merciless. They are often the ones that are saying, hey, this guy didn't pay his tax. Go beat him. Get him. They're narcs. <laughs> like, they're just like... Literally, the idea of tax collector became a derogatory term in their culture. Jesus, oh yeah, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. 
Can you believe that guy? Jesus says, if you choose to only love the people who love you, you're acting like a tax collector. That's what your enemy does. That's a very low standard. Love those who love you. It's pretty easy. And if you only show the love for those who are near you and like you and similar to you, you're acting like the Gentiles. Because here's the thing. At, at this time, the Jewish thinking, the Gentiles are, are like separated. They're all people who are not the Israelite people, separate from the people of God. And Acts tells us the story of how the Gentiles get to be a part of the people of God. But, and Jesus lived in his ministry, and he, he actively welcomed people who were not Israelite into the people of God. But in their thinking, when they're thinking Gentile, it's people separate, different than us, pagan, over here. We don't associate. And Jesus says, listen, if you choose only to love those who love you and you only greet your fellow Jewish people, you aren't acting like the people of God. You're acting like the Gentiles. They do that. They don't want to come talk to you. So if you say, well, they don't want to come talk to me, so I'm forget that. I'm not going to reach out to them. You're acting like them. <laughs> Stop it. Love your enemy. Or, to put it another way, from Leviticus 19, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Nothing has changed. Greet the Gentile as you would greet a fellow Israelite. That's what Jesus tells them. Love your enemy and treat them as you would your neighbor and your friend. Because then you will be like the king and better embody what it means to be a part of the kingdom. That's tough. Jesus doesn't say, okay, like, now let make it just be super simple and go. He wouldn't be saying this to them if, it, if he didn't need to tell them it. If they didn't need the reminder, like, hey, this takes work. This is an active thing. This doesn't just like, oh, I got it now. Everything is clicked and in, in place. This love, this kingdom love, goes beyond the things going on in our lives. And it says, I love you despite the fact that you are my enemy because my heavenly father saw fit to love me when I was his enemy. And at the end of all these things that Jesus has talked about, how we view anger, how we view others, how we view marriage, how we view our commitments, how we view truth and promises and justice and what's right and wrong, it can all be summarized and realized in this, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If you do that, you will probably accomplish the other ones. Because if we can learn to love our enemies, really love our enemies, those things are going to flow from it because loving our neighbor is going to be a lot easier. That's why, to summarize this, and all of these things, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <sighs> How are we doing at that? Um, because because I, I, I'm not doing so hot. Be perfect as God is perfect. 
When Jesus is saying this, he's using a phrase that is also taken from Leviticus 19. Jesus is really working this chapter. One at the beginning which says, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Nothing has changed. Except maybe how much hope we have. And you might hear that and you might go, Well, how, okay, how do I do that? How do I work on my anger? How do I work on my lust and my marriage and make my words count? How do I check my commitments? How do I rein in my desire for revenge? How do I love my enemy? Or how can I be perfect as God is perfect? How am I going to do that? And the message of the gospel is you can't. You're not going to be able to. You can try. But remember, you become part of the kingdom when you are changed by Jesus. When you accept Jesus, accept him as your savior, and thus become not an enemy of God, but a child of God, you accept this kingdom standard. And, and as you let Jesus influence your life, you should begin to change. And that's good. That's what it means to accept Christ. It, it is faith in Jesus. That's how we are saved. But after we are saved, we ought to grow. We ought to begin to look more like our Jesus. Jesus died to make us able to be perfect in God's eyes. Let me say that again. Jesus died to make us be able to be perfect in God's eyes. How can we be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect? Through Jesus. That's, that's the only hope that we have. He's our only real hope for really beginning to figure any of this out. It's through Jesus that we're able to love our enemy. Because it's through Jesus that we are no longer enemies. It's through Jesus that we can be good citizens of the kingdom because it, it is because of Jesus that we are citizens of that kingdom. It's all because of Jesus.